This program is brought to you by Emory University. God, we thank you for the beauty of this day, the blessings of this Easter season, the reminder that love overcomes hate, life overcomes death. Be with us now as we feed our minds, feed our bodies, and let us be ever mindful that there are many who have no food to eat and no stimulation for their brains. Help us live as though your reign is already among us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Sorry, Professor McFarlane will be introducing our guest. Good morning. It's a pleasure uh, for me today uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Curtis J. Evans, uh, currently uh, Assistant Professor of the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago. Uh, Dr. Evans uh, received his BA from the University of Houston, uh, his MA from the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and his PhD from Harvard University. Uh, his, uh, uh, he's a historian of American religions uh, with particular interest in uh, race and religion in U.S. history and slavery and Christianity in North America. His essays have appeared in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Church History, and Religion in American Culture. And his first book, The Burden of Black Religion, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2008, uh, made crucial arguments that black religion uh, was uh, decisive for debates about the role of blacks in American culture, especially uh, prior to realistic pros uh, prospects for integration. He has recently, within the last few weeks, I guess, uh, been awarded a Henry Luce Fellowship uh, for the coming academic year, uh, and he will be using that time to uh, work on his current project, which is on the formation and evolution of the Race Relations Sundays in the Federal Council of Churches, the predecessor body to the National Council of Churches uh, from the 1920s uh, through the post-war period. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Evans to us. Thank you for all coming out. Um, I had the misfortune of having a rather scratchy throat on the very day that I'm going to be giving this talk, so I hope you'll pardon me. I will try to talk as loudly as I can, and I'm hoping that my voice won't give out before the talk. Uh, the title of my talk today is Beyond the Black Church. In his classic work, The Negro Church in America, published in 1963, E. Franklin Frazier, a professor of sociology at Howard University, tried to imagine and predict what would happen to the black church in the future if the integration of blacks in the broader American society and culture proceeded as he and other social scientists expected and hoped. Frazier noticed that institutions that embodied the secular interests of blacks were being undermined more rapidly than those representing their cultural interests. Blacks' access to businesses and newspapers, he noted, made specifically black newspapers and businesses less important and in some cases superfluous. Schools represented cultural institutions for Frazier, and he also predicted that specifically black schools would become less important in the future as the walls of segregation came tumbling down, though, we, though he would prove to be wrong on this particular score. He saw additional evidence for the persistence of black cultural institutions because in the lives of many African Americans, they held deeply rooted traditions that resisted the trend toward integration. According to Frazier, 
the most significant cultural institution created by blacks, the Negro church, served as the most important institutional barrier to the integration and assimilation of blacks into American society and culture, even though it could no longer function as a refuge from white contempt and an agency of social control for the majority of blacks. Because Frazier was writing at a time when efforts at and desires for integration were probably at their height, that is, during the late 1950s and the early 1960s, he may have overstated both the degree to which black churches ceased functioning as places of refuge from white contempt and the speed at which integration was taking place. Yet, there were many prescient insights to be gained from Frazier's emphasis on the tenacity and prominence of black churches as cultural forms and institutions in the lives of black Americans. It is worth reflecting on this problem that Frazier portrayed. I call it the central problem of the black church, that is, as a site of difference and hence resistance or a barrier to integration, as it was described in the social science literature of the 1950s and 1960s. Thus, historically, the black church has been perceived as an actual collectivity devoted to common goals and the object of critique and commendation to the extent to which it moves away from or towards such perceived common goals. However, in actuality, black churches comprise a vast array of religious organizations with quite different doctrines, histories, denominational affiliations, and varied approaches to social reform and political activity. Let me make two propositions that I, that I want to hold in tension as I put forth my thesis on what I call the problem of the black church. First, from the very origins of independent black churches, blacks have perceived their churches as reflections of a shared experience and condition. Lori Maffley Kipp in her book, Setting Down the Sacred Past, African American Race Histories, demonstrates how complicated and varying the basis of this commonality could actually be. As, as Maffley Kipp argues, sometimes for black Christians, Christian community had a significance that extended beyond the needs of the individual or the racial collective to an awareness of a shared spiritual past and future. In other words, racial identity in this way of seeing things could be regarded as a temporary state. Thus, Maffley Kipp points to evidence in collective narratives among black Christian chroniclers that indicate that the emergence of black Christianity, that is, the rise of separate black churches, became a problem to be explained rather than a freedom to be celebrated. A broader Christian community or fellowship could thus at times be the basis of shared identity. Nonetheless, the rise of black churches was an important moment for the development of a sense of peoplehood connected through many ties that transcended a particular location. As James Campbell writes about the rise of independent black churches in the late 18th century, here I quote him, these humble institutions both reflected and fostered an emerging sense of peoplehood, of membership in an imagined community of black people transcending barriers of time, space, and condition, end quote. It is important to note that Campbell, in his excellent work on the origins and development of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, makes this statement immediately after cautioning us not to confuse Richard Allen's and early black religious leaders' emphasis on collective uplift and separate black churches with a much later black nationalist ideology. After all, Campbell rightly notes, what Allen and others of his day affirmed was a racial affinity based on shared experience and condition, not an essential distinctive racial genius 
as later claimed by W.E.B. Du Bois and others. Thus, we may with plausibility regard the black church as an imagined community of a diverse lot of people in these United States of America, or as a public sphere in the words of Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, in which values and issues were aired, debated, and disseminated throughout the larger black community. This concession should in no way mean that I am using this term in a shorthand way to refer to an actual entity with a unified program of racial advance, or an, in, or an institution with a singular project of progressive political liberation, as this, as this expression has come to imply in public parlance. There's no shortage of historical and sociological studies that describe the Negro church or the black church as a social space of relaxation and self-respect, a refuge in a hostile white world, and a nation within a nation. And I'm quoting E. Franklin Frazier and a number of other sociologists. A classic statement of this expansive role of the black church was articulated by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1897 in an essay that he entitled The Problem of Amusement, though the contents of the essay indicate that his title could have been more accurately rendered The Problem of the Negro Church. Du Bois wrote, the Negro church is not simply an organism for the propagation of religion. It is the center of the social, intellectual, and religious life of an organized group of individuals. It is, in fine, the central organ of the organized life of the American Negro for amusement, relaxation, instruction, and religion. For Du Bois and many other, many other social scientists who dominated the study for many years and created many of the key terms for the debate, the black church, because of the unique circumstances of black oppression that demanded a united stance against white supremacy and the cultural tenacity of an African heritage, though Frazier was one of those who denied this, the black church for them was a collective social institution that had a broader and deeper role than white churches, hence its significance and tenacity in African American culture. My second proposition is that sociological literature and historical studies on the black church have obscured and often rendered invisible the diversity and fluidity of African-American religious life. These studies have operated under functionalist models that primarily limit their analysis of black churches to whether or not they contribute to a progressive politics of liberation and a critique of racism and structural social inequality. They have been undertaken with implicitly prescriptive and truncated notions of human agency. They have also imposed static, monolithic, and overly generalized conceptions of African-American religions. In a recent book, Your Spirit Walks Beside Us, The Politics of Black Religion, Barbara Savage states these issues rather bluntly. Savage writes that the term the black church is a political, intellectual, and theological construction that symbolizes unity and homogeneity while masking the enormous diversity and independence among African-American religious institutions and believers. She argues that the, the black church is therefore an illusion and a metaphor that has taken on a life of its own and implies the existence of a powerful entity with organized power, making it inevitably vulnerable to unrealistic expectations. For Savage, then, there is no such thing as the black church. But in reality, this expression is a political, theological and intellectual construction that symbolizes unity and homogeneity while masking diversity and independence among black religious institutions and believers. In view of these different analyses of the black church, 
My thesis is that we must hold in tension the collective ways in which many African-American churches have been forced to confront racism and political and economic oppression, even as we acknowledge and seriously take into account the diversity of African-American religious traditions and divergence along lines of place, class, and condition. We must not, however, allow aspirations for and perceptions of collective uplift and shared conditions to mask the different ways in which black churches have approached social and political reform. Nor must we subsume the divergent strands of black religious life under the shorthand rubric of the black church. I will return to this problem later in this talk and offer what I think are a few helpful ways to move forward. Let me, let me just say a word about how my book, The Burden of Black Religion, led me to raise some of these questions. I would like particularly to focus on the topics of agency and the problem of a monolithic black church, or what I call the conceptual model of the black church. I was intrigued that scholars in the 1940s, especially African-American sociologists, were attempting to prove that black Americans, and more generally people of African descent, were not innately or naturally religious. After further probing, I discovered that the deeper political issue was the extent to which blacks could integrate into American culture, and the question of how to minimize the perceived peculiarities and the real distinctions in black culture in comparison to white culture. Of course, I'm using terms that were common at the time, even though I realize all of these terms carry overly general meanings. African-American sociologists felt that dramatizations and cultural images of black religion had perpetuated harmful views of blacks as buffoonish and archaic characters who were out of place in a modern industrial nation. They, saw, they thought that academic and popular notions of blacks as super-religious and emotional rested on inappropriate and out, or outdated biological or racial theories of innate difference and exaggerated or inflated numbers of black church membership, especially in urban areas uh, which uh, they tended to focus on. So they pointed to recent statistics showing that black, church male, black male church membership, especially in urban areas, was lower than that of white males. The point was to demonstrate that there was no good reason to claim that blacks were more naturally drawn to religion than whites. The attempt was not simply to critique various expressions of religion, though that was a goal of some critics of African-American religion, but the central concern was to detach black religion from politically passive and primitive notions of religiosity, which cast blacks as outsiders. Social scientists then argued that black churches and their importance among blacks had developed historically because of black deprivation in the broader society and the, and the peculiar circumstances of black oppression in a racist society, not because of innate peculiarity. The question of black agency became a salient one, though not framed in the precise way that I'm approaching it and with the specific terms that I will use in this lecture. Because to interpreters, it was clear that black religion, particularly in the South, was otherworldly, emotional, ineffective in promoting collaborative attacks against racism and economic inequality, and stood as a vestige of black distinctiveness and thus a hindrance to assimilation, they almost invariably saw black religious life in reactive terms. In his massive work, The American Dilemma, which was published in 1944, and this book which forced a, synth a synthesis on race relations and the problem of race in America in the post-war context, the transplanted a Swedish economist 
Gunnar Myrdal, and other social scientists saw the Negro church as a peculiarity of black culture that should diminish or significantly decline in membership once blacks gradually integrated into American society. To the extent that the Negro church was losing its influence as an agent of social control and a refuge from the forces of racism, and to the extent that its ability to undermine segregation was of no effect, as many critics and interpreters thought, it became the object of criticism. It was regarded as an obstacle not only to integration, but as a burden that held blacks back and that disabled them from advancing economically and politically, a critical view that was shared especially by black newspaper editors and writers. The Negro church represented a painful past of oppression, and it was seen as an institution that was squandering the resources of African Americans. Many of these implicit and explicit criticisms of of, of African-American religion were contained in Benjamin Mays and, and Joseph Nicholson's classic, The Negro's Church, which was published in 1933. And perhaps these major criticisms of black churches have been obscured or not noticed because of excerpts for anthologies taken mostly from the last chapter of this book, which was primarily laudatory, and it was entitled The Genius of the Negro Church, which in my view was sort of oddly appended to the substantive and mostly critical analysis of, of the body of the text. Many recent books on African-American religions express a deep uneasiness with the tenacity of a monolithic notion of the black church and the implications of this way of writing and thinking about African-American religions. It seems to me that we have adopted a more chastened view of agency for oppressed groups, especially when we reflect on the religious traditions of black Americans and the real circumstances of their difficult history and the extraordinary demands that were placed on black churches by critics and even leaders of the churches. Agency has been crucial to recent scholarship on African-American women in particular, though it seems to me that much work overemphasizes agency without taking into account the varied circumscriptions in the lives of oppressed groups. Perhaps this is so because these scholars want to avoid what they regard as a tragic view of black history uh, in, in which blacks serve as passive victims who were overwhelmed to such an extent that little room is made for a more capacious notion of agency that does not directly relate to overt political activity. Cultural anthropologist Marla Frederick poses the question starkly in her recent book, Between Sundays, Black Women and Everyday Struggles of Faith. She asks, what is meant by agency? Must agency be limited to only that which engages politics. May it not also refer to the ways in which women, through empathetic and caring activities, create communities of strength and healing? Frederick's answer is yes to the latter question as she seeks to develop the various ways in which black women in Halifax County, North Carolina, engage in day-to-day -day activities of caring for their families and those in need. Her work raises important questions and offers powerful insights about the meaning of agency. Frederick argues that sometimes in people, in this, sometimes people, in this case African-American women, take little interest in, in, in resistance per se and channel their energies elsewhere. She points to a long history of an African-American self-help tradition which has been involved in establishing schools, community centers, orphanages, senior homes, and places of refuge and development. Frederick regards these kinds of day-to-day -day activities as means of working against outside forces of oppression, particularly in their emphasis on education, training, and nurturance. Creativity, 
sustaining communities and developing opportunities for success are thus forms of resistance for Frederick. Although I'm in, I'm, I am in basic agreement with Frederick, given her insistence on rendering so many spheres of human activity as forms of resistance, my question for her remains, why must we insist so strongly on regarding agency as resistance per se? I'm going to return to this question shortly. Uh, in his recent book, After Redemption, Jim Crow and the Transformation of African American Religion and the Delta, John Giggy also wants to move away from a tragic notion of black history that views blacks as simply victims of racism and oppression. When first reading his interesting book, I had mixed feelings about Giggy's attempt to reassert agency because it can tend to de-emphasize the brutal circumstances against which blacks have had to contend, especially in the Mississippi Delta region that he focuses on. Yet, I welcome works like his that expand our understanding of the details, nuance, and complexity of history. Giggy tells a fascinating and engaging story about the ways in which blacks in the Mississippi and Arkansas Delta created new religious movements, such as the Church of God and Christ denomination, that addressed the, the changing circumstances of their lives even before their arrival in places like Chicago. So the emphasis is on a kind of creativity and transformation in African-American religion before the Great Migration takes place. Uh, Giggy also examines the four major religious bodies of blacks in the Delta, giving close attention to issues of sacred space, spiritual authority, definitions of proper worship, and disputes between the various church groups, which were crucial in understanding why figures like Charles Mason, who founded the Church of God in Christ, developed what became a new denomination. Cultural creativity, diversity, and fluidity are perhaps the best words to describe the emphases of this richly researched book. Yet, for all his focus on blacks as active agents, Gigi cannot avoid discussing the powerful constraints against black life and movement in the Mississippi Delta. After all, the book ends on a tragic note. In 1919, after black migration to the north had depleted parts of the Mississippi Delta of black labor, it is estimated that around 200 blacks were murdered by white planters in Elaine, Arkansas, because black members of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union turned to the courts and publicly threatened to strike as a means of obtaining better working conditions. The question may be asked as an historical inquiry or as a sigh of existential concern, what effect did black religion, cultural creativity, or the Negro church have on the oppressive system that was Jim Crow segregation in that specific context of the Mississippi Delta. The answer to this, to this question must be a resounding none if we continue to hold a narrow notion of agency that is explicitly linked to political activity. In my view, this older notion of agency can hardly account for Giggy's claim that the religious lives of blacks helped them to, quote, neutralize the corrosive effects of segregation, end quote. Would our scholarship on African-American religion or other groups look different if we heeded anthropologist Sabah Mahmoud's plea that we detach the notion of agency from the goals of progressive politics? Mahmoud suggests alternative ways of thinking about agency as more complex than simply human acts that challenge or uphold social norms. Although her work deals with Muslim women who are part of the urban mosque movement in Egypt, her calls for more capacious notions of agency are relevant to African-American religion. Now, Mahmoud has a rich and complex analysis of feminist theories of freedom and agency, and her work is attuned to debates specific to feminism. 
Thus, my use of Mahmoud cannot do justice to her involved and intricate analyses. But what I find especially compelling about her work, and particularly applicable to the study of African American religious history, is her attempt to redefine agency and move beyond conceptualizing it along a binary model of subordination and subversion. I quote Mahmoud because her point is, much, is very much salient to the study of African American religion. She writes, this uh, traditional scholarship elides dimensions of human action whose ethical and political status does not map onto the logic of repression and resistance, end quote. Thus, Mahmoud makes the provocative and challenging assertion that we should detach the notion of agency from the goals of progressive politics. She also asserts that what may appear to be a case of deplorable passivity and docility from a progressivist point of view may actually be a form of agency, but this can only be known from within discourses and structures of subordination that create the very conditions that allow one to be an agent. Now, I'm not suggesting that we follow Mahmoud in every particular, after all, her attempt to destabilize notions of a stable self, or what she calls personhood in terms of the relative autonomy of the individual from the social, is problematic, at least from my perspective, in reference to African-American religion, because biographical fullness and individuality have often been subsumed under the rubric of the black church. And this is something that I'm arguing for, that is to say biographical fullness and individuality has often been obscured by this particular conceptual model. Um, let me turn to a story from Indianola, Mississippi in the late 1930s to make my point about complicating the notion of agency and extending Mahmoud's argument. Hortense Powdermaker, a white anthropologist studying the lives of African Americans, mostly women she was allowed to interview in the Mississippi Delta town of Indianola, devoted a chapter to what she called the secular role of the church in her book, after Freedom, a Cultural Study in the Deep South, which was published in 1939. <clears throat> Powdermaker noted that the church was the one institution where the Negro enjoys full and undisturbed control, although perhaps overstated because blacks' control of the church was hardly undisturbed in the rural South. Powdermaker astutely observed the ways in which the church contributed to a sense of self-respect and social esteem among blacks, qualities that were denied in the broader society. She wrote of ministers playing politics as elders and deacons, assuming almost surrogate political roles that they lacked outside the church. In the end, however, Powdermaker argued that the church served as an antidote, a palliative and escape. It helped blacks to endure the status quo, thus relieving and counteracting the discontents that would usually make for rebellion against injustice sort of channeling their way, as it were, their discontent. This conclusion was similar to a kind of classic Marxist argument in which, in which religion served as an anodyne, which not only temporarily numbed the pain of living in harsh economic circumstances, but that also clouded one's vision so as to cause one to misdiagnose the source of the oppressed discontent. In other words, by focusing on a heavenly world, these blacks were looking away from their painful and concrete existence in the rural South, according to this line of reasoning. Powdermaker was apparently not satisfied with this narrow approach to the function of the church. She acknowledged that it served, as I mentioned before, a vitally important function of maintaining blacks' self-respect. Furthermore, in a later essay, Powdermaker argued that black churches placed great emphasis 
on Jesus' admonition to love one's enemies and the Christian virtue of brotherly love. She admitted that this was an enormous struggle for blacks because abuses in the Jim Crow South ranged from the refusal of whites to extend titles of courtesy to blacks to the brutal lynching of innocent persons. Here I quote her at length. These Negroes are believing Christians who have taken very literally the Christian doctrine that it is sinful to hate. Yet on every hand they are faced with situations which must inevitably produce hatred in any normal human being. These situations run the scale from seeing an innocent person lynched to having to accept the inferior accommodations on a general train. The feeling of sin and guilt is frequently and openly expressed. In a Sunday school class in a southern rural colored church, a teacher tells the tale of a sharecropper who had worked all season for a white planter, only to be cheated out of half of his earnings. The teacher's lesson is that it is wrong to hate this planter because Christ told us to love our enemies. The members of the class say how hard it is not to hate, but that since it is sin, they will change their hate to love. They regard this as possible, though difficult." End quote. Powdermaker and other social scientists studying blacks in the rural South noted the pervasive violence against blacks in the 1930s. These assessments were based on their local studies of Sunflower County, Mississippi. Uh, Sunflower is, of course, noted because it's the county in which the uh, white citizens' councils emerged uh, in opposition to the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. Um, John Dollard, a social uh, psychologist, observed, quote, the threat of lynching is likely to be in the mind of the Negro child from earliest days. Memories of such events came out frequently in the life histories of Negroes. Every Negro in the South knows that he is under a kind of sentence of death. He does not know when his time will come. It may never come, but it may also be at any time, end quote. Although most blacks realize the futility and terrifying consequences of outright opposition to segregation and thus an uncharitable reading of pastors' calls for blacks not to hate whites would be that they emphasize love for prosaic and pragmatic reasons. Powdermaker's work demonstrates the ways in which the religious culture of blacks in the rural South helped to produce certain dispositions and ethical actions in black subjects, to use Mahmoud's language from another context. These dispositions allowed them to bear, admittedly with great difficulty, the harsh circumstances under which they lived and to vanquish bitterness in their hearts, according to Powdermaker, who does not quite tell us how she came to this conclusion, except by focusing closely on blacks' actions and their self-reports. If we regard these religious actions and dispositions as forms of agency, as people working on themselves, even if we cannot measure effects in terms of ex explicit or overt political action, then we would have to move beyond a notion of agency as acts that either resist or uphold the status quo. Not only that, but under different circumstances, we could imagine that such practices and forms of action could take another or different form. For example, though Powdermaker saw black churches as forms of escape from oppression, she later admitted in her 1966 memoir that her work among blacks in 1930s Mississippi did not lead her to predict that black Southern, Southerners would demand full civil rights decades later. She acknowledged something that did not occur to her in the, in the 1930s, that black churches, places where people train themselves in organization, administration, leadership, and cooperation, played a major role in the civil rights movement. 
Here's how she restated her former emphasis on black church, church's frequent admonitions to love. Quote, the faith in God's and man's love which enable the Negroes in Indianola to maintain their self-respect and to channel their aggression in acting the meek role demanded by whites now sparks demands for full equality, end quote. Obviously, this attempt to understand the forms of action practiced by blacks at this time is not meant to valorize the harsh conditions under which African Americans lived in 1930s Mississippi. In fact, Powdermaker was keenly attuned to the various ways in which blacks had to adopt multiple roads before whites, which she believed exacted a heavy penalty on their sense of dignity. In many instances, she wrote of seeing self-reliant and intelligent black women performing the role of subservient persons and wearing the mask of obsequiousness before whites because of the racial mores demanded at the time. My point is certainly not to make overly general and positive remarks about ethical dispositions and virtues that oppression created or made possible. Rather, it is a call to rethink forms of agency that do not relate directly to questions of resistance and political action. It is hoped that we can adopt more complex notions of agency through close scrutiny of these kinds of local studies, studies in particular historical circumstances. After this discussion of agency, I want to state that my interest in tweaking or radically re redefining agency is not my primary concern if we can find other creative ways to rethink the tired dichotomy of resistance and accommodation and open up more interesting analyses of how people work on themselves and within a culture that is always working on them. Perhaps, in view of this long excursus on agency, some may think that my work necessarily bears on larger questions about agency, and therefore my analysis is more than an excursus. I welcome comments and feedback on this point. My focus on agency is necessary in part because conceptualizations of the black church model have operated under truncated or narrow conceptions of agency and obscured other more fruitful ways besides political act, action and direct opposition to the system of oppression in which people persist, act, and sustain themselves under harsh circumstances. Recent work on African-American religion has expressed not simply dissatisfaction with older notions of agency, John Gigi's After Freedom, Anthea Butler's Women in the Church of God and Christ, and other recent books on African-American religion also exhibit a deep-seated uneasiness with perpetuations of the black church model. None of these has made an explicit call for a moratorium on the expression, the black church, perhaps because they realize that nomenclature is only one small part of a larger problem. But I think that such a moratorium is a helpful start with all of the limitations that it might have. In some ways, when the claim was made in the 1970s that the Negro church had died, it appeared to be a call for an end to older terminology and therefore static conceptualizations of black religion. But alas, such was not the case. I'm making a specific reference to the work of the late C. Eric Lincoln, The Black Church Since Frazier, which was published in 1973. Lincoln wrote movingly about the death of the Negro church that Frazier had written about two decades earlier. Frazier was actually uh, giving his talk in the 50s, which is why I mentioned two decades earlier. He stated that it died an agonized death in the decade of the 1960s. But instead of welcoming this alleged death of the Negro church, Lincoln asserted that in its place sprang, here I'm quoting him, the bold, stride, self-conscious phoenix 
that is the contemporary black church. Contrasting this new and defiant black church to an older Negro church that represented meekness, suffering, and submission, Lincoln boldly claimed that the black church symbolized freedom and was mostly an agent of social change. The black church was to be enlisted in the racial struggle and used as an instrument of social transformation. It is small wonder that African-American leaders would desire churches to become involved in the civil rights struggle, given the role that churches had historically been called on to perform in the black community. As Barbara Savage notes, black churches were the only indigenous black control organizations with the potential for mass mobilization. Furthermore, few black scholars viewed these issues as strictly academic matters. Too much was at stake. In view of this kind of history of black religion, which would also, in my from my perspective, include, to some extent, the black theology project, I find myself concurring with Victor Anderson's Beyond Ontological Blackness. Anderson's seminal text seeks to deconstruct race and, by extension, conceptual categories, such as the black church. He defines ontological blackness as categorical, essentialist, and representational languages depicting black life and experience. Anderson's book urges us to recognize that though race still remains an effective category in identity formation, black identities are continually being reconstituted as African Americans inhabit widely differentiated social spaces and communities of moral discourse. Although Anderson offers a theological and cultural critique of ontological blackness, it is his empirically demonstrable claim that the conditions of postmodern North American life make necessary a new cultural politics of black identity that I want to follow. He argues that given the social and cultural elements of differentiation among African Americans, it is no longer plausible to keep reiterating such ideological totalities as the black church, the black faith, or the black sacred cosmos. Now that the walls of segregation are down and we are in the cultural situation that Frazier could only speculate about, a new way of thinking and writing about African-American religion is demanded. These works are already being produced, and they converge in making a call for a move beyond the black church model, and more generally, what Anderson called ontological blackness. I'm going to spell out the implications of this new work in a short while. While academic scholarship is making great strides in deconstructing a rather static and unhelpful notion of the black church, in the realm of public and popular discourse, it seems to me much work remains to be done. In the aftermath of the discovery and dissemination of Jeremiah Wright's incendiary sermons calling upon God to damn America, commentators and newspaper reporters busily talked and wrote about the black church, often in the most generalized terms. I watched and listened with both amusement and sorrow colleague Dwight Hopkins, who is a professor of theology at the University of Chicago Divinity School and also a member of, of Trinity Church, answered patiently and carefully some of the most banal questions about the black church and what blacks believed. Perhaps more interesting than the lack of interest of talk show and radio hosts and nuanced public debate about the religious lives of African Americans were the ways in which Wright and candidate Barack Obama, prior to these postings of Wright's sermons, invoked a particular notion of the black church to advance their respective perspectives about religion and politics. From Barbara Savage's perspective, Wright told his story as part of a defense of the black church, labeling attacks against him as an attack on the black church itself with its distinctive styles of worship, protest against injustice, 
and its willingness to side with the poor. Yet, Wright's activist church that has been involved in trying to deal with the problems of gangs, closing doors, providing information and assistance to AIDS victims, welcoming gays and lesbians, and engaging in neighborhood renewal could hardly be taken as representative of black churches, though there are clearly many other black churches in Chicago, Harlem, and major urban areas that resemble Wright's progressive approach to social reform. Wright astutely recognized the symbolic value of invoking the black church as a way of rallying support for black struggles for social justice and hearkening back to a, collective, to a past of collective strength in the face of overwhelming odds. The black church in this case was meant to evoke an historical memory of survival against the odds and collective struggle. In his book, Audacity of Hope, Obama contrasted his mother's humanitarian deeds and her solitary journey for justice and wholeness with his quest for racial identity and his finding a resting place in the community of black religious believers in Wright's Trinity Church. As though he had Du Bois in one hand while writing this chapter, Obama wrote lyrically about the black church. He noted here, I quote him, out of necessity the black church had to minister to the whole person. Out of necessity the black church rarely had the luxury of separating individual salvation from collective salvation. It had to serve as the center of the community's political, economic, and social, as well as spiritual life. It understood in an intimate way the biblical call to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, naked and challenge powers and principalities. In the history of these struggles, I was able to see faith as more than just a comfort to the weary or a hedge against death. It was an active, palpable agent in the world." End quote. In Obama's narrative, the black church's common worship and its collective efforts at social justice were contrasted to the lonely individualism of his skeptical mother who left him without a tradition or community in which to plant and grow his budding desire for social justice. This, of course, from my perspective, was not, not to be seen as a criticism of his mother in my reading, but rather of Obama's own incomplete journey after, receiving, after having received certain valued insights love and nurturance from his mother. Obama also wrote about the black church as a place where human frailty and sin are recognized and joked about where people are not harshly judged and forced to separate their day-to-day -day struggles from their presence at church. There seemed to be an implicit contrast with white conservative Christianity as this section followed his discussion of white evangelicals' criticism of Obama's position on abortion as unchristian. In the end, this was an appropriation of the black church as an heroic force and as an exemplar of a particular approach to public life. It is hard to quibble with an attempt to appreciate the struggles of those who proceed the present generation. But what is often overlooked or ignored in these portrayals of the black church is that, is that this is a relatively recent assessment of black churches, post-civil rights to be precise. Um, uh, notions about the primitive or claims about an unprincipled mixture of politics and religion are often attached to such grand and totalizing claims about the black church, thus making it easier to essentialize the entirety of black America. We forget that for all its heroic images that now circulate in public discourse, there has been a counterbalancing and perhaps more culturally authoritative conception of the black church as insufficiently Christian and as a threat to a particular kind of social order. 
Savage's analysis of this controversy between Wright and Obama is very helpful. She argues that the lesson of the controversy over Obama's relationship to Wright is, quote, that simplistic dichotomies that drive most discussions about race, religion, and politics still have traction because African-American religion remains a subject of mystery, misunderstanding, and manipulation. And so, on the other side, in postings for the Washington New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, I like to sort of read these postings when I have nothing else to do, uh, and they're quite disturbing at times. Um, and other newspapers and on uh, radio talk shows and TV, one could not but be struck that there were many who were all too willing to associate Obama with Wright and the black church. For these critics, however, the black church stood as a code for all that was threatening to politics, Christianity, and a particular kind of social order. Wright's comments about liberation were dismissed, having their roots in the dangerous and allegedly anti-American black theology project of James Cone and a host of other 1960s radicals. Diversity, nuance, and biographical fullness were lost in such discussions. For these critics, Wright indeed represented something that was shorthand and sinister, whether the black church or blackness in general. I do not mean to suggest that a political use of the black church as a liberatory instrument was somehow responsible for critics making pejorative judgments about Wright's and Obama's politics. But I do think that by reiterating and perpetuating this model of the black church, it is made easier to essentialize black religions and black politics. One cannot but be sympathetic at some level in what Wright and Obama were attempting to do, namely to demonstrate respect and appreciation for that vast horde of African Americans who made enormous sacrifices that enabled both men to occupy the high positions that they commanded. Therefore, in responding to Obama's and Wright's rhetorical and symbolic use of the black church, I find myself expressing what Catherine Lofton has written. In some ways, she writes, it hurts to deconstruct a term carrying such revolutionary virtue. She continues, for scholars then and now, that is historically, the black church was cast as the critical bridge away from slavery, away from economic deprivation, and away from a state of victimization. Well, from my perspective, at least for some scholars and leaders, it was understood in this way. But Lofton's basic point is well taken. She continues, when attempting to invest individuals with biographical fullness, the black church acts as a beached well on the highway. It is beached and blanched not only because it is monolithic and irritatingly vague, to the scrupulous archival historian, but also because it obscures the very agency it claims to inscribe. For these and other reasons I have noted above, I agree with Lofton that we should fight for a moratorium on this expression. It has obscured perhaps more than it, than it has disclosed about African American life. It has trapped blacks into a static scholarly abstraction that hinders our ability to appreciate the complexity and messiness of human behavior and the complicated relationship between politics and religion. Let me now make a few comments that will clarify what I am not saying and then offer some suggestions about the now what question that I am often asked. Clearly, black churches continue to play an important role in the lives of many African Americans and historically black churches have occupied a broader role than white churches because of the circumstances of black and American society. My comments should not be taken to suggest that I'm denying the distinctive features of black churches or the particular history that black churches have had. 
My concerns are about the currency that the metaphor and illusion, to use Savage's terminology, of the black that the black church has acquired. I'm especially worried about how it has subsumed biographical individuality, made political activity integral to notions of agency, and has reinforced notions of racial essentialism. What next? What is the terminology and methodology that should replace the motto that I have been describing? In various venues, I'm asked this question, and very rarely are those present satisfied with my alternative proposal, if indeed they are in agreement with me on the nature of the problem that needs addressing in the first place. Well, the first point I want to make is that I do not think new terminology and descriptive analyses are sufficient to rectify the black church model, but they are one step in the right direction. Categories, names, terminology, and nomenclature are necessary to make sense of the messy and confusing worlds that we study. Yet we should be especially careful in our attention to terminology in the study of African American history and religion, given the ways in which particular words and categories have been used to denigrate, essentialize, and alienate people of African descent. It was with some degree of trepidation and hesitancy that I included in this lecture the expression the black church, the variant label that I want to avoid. Even with all of the connotations attached to certain terminology, I decided to use the black church in my title because I wanted to allude to the history behind the expression and the power of language and words to essentialize or even create new categories that become the object of debate and discussion. But I also wanted to demonstrate how the black church has become a problem as a descriptive category that can no longer render the diversity and nuance of black life in the United States in the early 21st century. To return then to, to new terminology as a replacement of the older expressions, there are those who long for something else. Though I'm not quite satisfied with ideal types and other various descriptions, one promising way is to look at the different ways in which black religious groups and traditions have adapted to the experience of oppression. Though I regret the subtitle of their book is Varieties of Protest and Accommodation, Anthropologist Hans Baer and Merrill Singer's book, African American Religion, views African American religions in terms of typologies. These include categories such as mainstream churches, messianic nationalist sects, uh, conversionist sects, thaumaturgical or healing sects, and religion, religious healing and folk medicine. Though I do not agree with some of its conclusions, the book is sufficiently attuned to historical development theological and denominational differences, class and geographical variations, and varied approaches to social reform and political action, that it serves as a good model of diverse categories in which to examine African-American religion. Even so, because of its fixation on rendering black religious traditions in relation to the binary of protest and accommodation, I have grave reserv reservations about this kind of study to help us move uh, toward a more nuanced and complex approach to, uh, to the study of African-American religions. Another approach to the study of black religion has been to render African-American churches as providing what we might call a discursive fear, sphere rather than interpreting them as an actual collective entity. This work, especially that of Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, Eddie Glaude, and even Marla Frederick, argues that a black public sphere was a critical place or sphere where debate about issues relating to African-American public life took place, and that historically this sphere has been found in the black church. 
Because of blacks experiencing exclusion from public debate, African Americans have historically cultivated space in black churches, women's clubs, and various social and political organizations to deal openly with issues pertaining to their lives. Here I am following Marla Frederick's summary of a vast body of literature on this topic. What I find compelling about the way in which Frederick addresses this issue is that, is that she asked the pertinent question of whether such a public sphere exists today in a post-civil rights era. Her answer is that part of this depends on whether or not racism is perceived by blacks as a real threat to African-American progress, and that these perceptions of racism, as Frederick notes, are, are influenced by differences in locale, economic progress, social mobility, and educational attainment. She also points out that while many African-Americans do feel that racism remains a major problem, there's a growing number of civic and religious leaders who reject race as an explanation for issues challenging black communities. Frederick maintains that in her study of, of Halifax County, North Carolina, public politics is still framed in largely black and white terms, though class is increasingly complicating this binary. Her point is that such a public sphere persists in many rural areas, though it has diminished in urban areas where ethnic diversity, multiculturalism, and new discussions of race complicate any singular notion of a public black sphere. Although much insight is to be gained from a careful reading of this vast body of work on a black public sphere, especially Higginbotham's innovative work which shows the role and importance of women in this sphere, I worry that the terminology and attention given to the public and political nature of this uh, alleged sphere, uh, sphere may be another reiteration of the black church model. For example, though Higginbotham states that the black church did not serve as a monolith, she repeatedly refers to the black church and asserts that the black church constituted a public that stood in opposition to the dominant white public. Given Higginbotham's attention to the ways in which black and white women work together for racial uplift and her meticulous analysis of the public and private work black women engaged in, I asked the following question with some degree of hesitancy. Can this notion of the black public sphere account for different conceptions of agency, and does it take notice of nuance and diversity in black life. Is this simply new terminology that reiterates some of the old black church model concerns? <coughs> I have no simple answers to these questions, and I ask them not simply as a rhetorical exercise. However, I wonder if this kind of approach to the study of African-American religions and its close resemblance to the black church model make it not quite up to the new task at hand. Although the right terminology and typology are important, they cannot stand alone to help us move beyond the black church. So the second major point I want to make is that the second issue, rather, that requires attention is to note that there simply is no singular politics of black religion. Ideals, longings, and aspirations are often mapped onto messy histories. Here I want to summarize the recent points made by Barbara Savage. Savage argues that we have come to see the past, quote, through the haze of a post-civil rights consciousness, end quote, whereby black churches, with the image of leading religious activists such as Martin Luther King Jr., are seen as holding a healthy and exemplary balance, at least for some observers, between politics and religion. Uh, Savage examines the dominant narrative of black churches and their political work, which were viewed overwhelmingly as failures in fulfilling such a mission. 
Yet Savage points to the civil rights movement as a transformative historical moment that altered dominant perceptions of black churches and their role in politics. Savage makes three main points, however, to demonstrate that the nexus between black religion and politics has necessarily been a strained one. First, she notes that the choices that people make about their religious lives are the most privately informed and freely made, thus making it very difficult for black churches to provide the ideological co cohesion needed for collect collective political mobilization. Second, black churches, as are many Protestant churches, are among the most local, decentralized, and idiosyncratic of social organizations. Savage convincingly claims that there is no such thing as the black church, and therefore it makes no sense to talk or ask about the relationship between the black church and politics. Third, Savage contends that to call black churches into political duty to uplift African Americans is to rely on an institution that was and remains largely male-led and female-dominated. Although Savage notes that this is the case with most religions, she, she believes this creates special problems for African Americans, aggravating in particular, here I quote her, persisting sensitivities about the strength and substantiality of black women and black male authority and masculinity. Although she does not quite spell this out very clearly, I presume she means the acute worries of black men about wielding authority in black-owned institutions in light of a long history of black men having little control over various aspects of their lives because of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, what James Baldwin called the emasculation of, of, of black male manhood, particularly in the South with its troubled history of lynching black males. So then it would seem to me that it is not simply ignorance of black religious practice and belief that would explain what Savage views as simplistic dichotomies about black religion, but rather the cultural work that has been afforded or performed by this black church model, at least among leaders of the churches. For critics, however, the black church can be shorthand for racial essentialism that can serve to alienate an unwanted or undesirable presence in the body politic. My point is that a singular politics of black religion does not exist, and it is ironic that critics and adherents rarely seem to acknowledge the problem with forwarding this distorted and simplistic view of African-American religions and their relationships to political action and social reform. The third uh, and final point I make is, is in some ways the most difficult one for me to argue personally and professionally, and that is the study of African-American religion that I'm proposing poses in the starkest relief the difficulty of scholars inhabiting a space of what Robert Orsi refers to as the space of in-betweenness. I ask for your patience because though this is my final point, it will take me a while to develop it. In some ways, this point has been made by Savage who notes that historically public expressions of anxiety about the role of black religious institutions in alleviating the difficult conditions of black life were never merely academic or rhetorical exercises because too much was at stake. Orsi's attempt then to, quote, eliminate the comfort of academic distance, end quote, is not readily applicable or straightforwardly so to the study of African-American religion because there has never been such comfort in the first place. The challenge has been to create some space between advocacy, critique, and aspirations for an objective, non-engaged study of African-American religions, especially among African-American leaders in the churches who studied black religions. 
But my comments are addressed primarily to academics and scholars of religion who are teaching and writing at universities and colleges. I've been asked, what is or what do I think is the social mission of black churches? I've been told that talking about varieties of Christianity, not to mention non-Christian religious traditions among African Americans and the humanist tradition in black thought, which Anthony Penn and others have written extensively about, is not an adequate substitute for a traditional understanding of the black church. Here I'm talking about conversation, but also graduate students and others who were not convinced by my argument. Uh, when NPR produced a soundbite from me, and it was a soundbite of two or three seconds based on a 45-minute interview, uh, in which I said that the notion of a singular black church was a holdover from the past that obscures the diversity of black life, uh, it followed a comment by the interviewer that I was among a young cadre of scholars of African American religion who wanted to ban the use of the term. I actually used the term mor moratorium, uh, as if I actually had such authority to ban anything. Uh, I sounded like a cranky commercial who wanted to deprive people of a past of hard-won accomplishments because my soundbite was preceded by a young African-American male state, stating quite movingly while standing inside an historic black church that when he thought of the black church, he was reminded of, of the struggles of his ancestors and the generations who preceded him. This struck me as a rather unfavorable juxtaposition of my position and his <laughs> position, especially as I listened to this contrast on the radio. The interviewer, of course, assured me that it was not her intention to present me in this light. I mention all of this to say that when Orsi de described his desired posture of scholars of religion to linger in a kind of no man's land, that, is a, that, that this is an enormous task placed on the shoulders of those of us who study and teach African-American religion. This is so for several reasons. First, teaching African-American religion is not simply discreetly as religious practices and beliefs hermetically sealed in their own world, but in a social and cultural world of racism and oppression is a painful and taxing experience. One reads the expressions of pain on the faces of undergraduates who have been exposed to historical realities of lynching and violence for the first time. This is not necessarily relevant to Orsi's concerns about historians and scholars rushing to judge as bad or good and ethical or unethical the religious practices of those they are studying. Rather, it speaks to the challenge of getting students to approach and imaginatively enter a history of circumscribed agency and help them not uh, rush to write only about a Martin Luther King Jr. or Fannie Lou Hamer, individuals who fought against the system and who followed a long line of lesser known persons more entangled and enthralled by a structure of oppression. Second, scholars in African American studies are often called upon to elucidate the social mission of black churches or to take sides in various contemporary debates. I do not say that this is unique to those who study African-American religions, but the urgency is greater and the burdens of history weigh more heavily. And third, because of the conditions of African-American life and some of the persisting problems at the present moment, uh, which are rooted in a troubled national history, uh, African-American scholars in particular, in particular have not had what Orsi calls the comfort of academic distance. Even research in the archives can be a deeply painful experience. I was reminded of this when doing research that eventuated in my book. Historian Jacqueline Dowd Hall writes that we, quote, bring to our writing the unfinished business of our lives and times, 
The experience of traveling for so long in the country of research becomes our past, for our stories grow from a process of remembering and forgetting our encounters with the relics, fragments, and whispers of an always already recollected time." End quote. As I reflect on the histories of our various disciplines, I'm reminded of not having the luxury of escape in the archives, as did many of the early historians, earlier historians who founded the discipline. The position of the disengaged spectator is unavailable for a son of the rural South, and thus Orsi's call for being engaged and vulnerable in one's relationship to the religions one studies has been almost a default position for African-American scholars, even when the ideal was dispassionate inquiry or the objectivist model as described by Peter Novick in his That Noble Dream, witness, for example, W.E.B. Du Bois's intellectual journey. Whatever I may not have known about the past before, what I found when I began digging into the archives of Harvard and many others has now become my past. As one born at the very end of the 1960s, I did not live through the civil rights years of marches and social activism. I have not experienced the kind of racial insults and oppression that my parents and relatives did, though I was born into a world that was a part of the isolated and rural black South that surprised even civil rights leaders because of the, the ubiquity of racial oppression and poverty. But as Dowd notes, my journeys into the archives have become my past. In the words of James Baldwin, it is with great pain and terror that I encountered the past of race and religion. No longer was the boundary between past and present so clear and distinct. I shall never forget that moment when I was doing research at Widener Library on that special floor that contained most of its rich collections of materials on African American history particularly after reading social scientific accounts of black religion that seemed to mitigate the harshness of lynching by pointing to what they regarded as the emotionalism of black religion, I was awakened to how deeply implicated scholarship has been in fostering a deeply disturbing notion of race and religion. I staggered under the weight of the past. Many of these scholars protected themselves under the mantle of science and clinical terminology as they dehumanized and pathologized African-American religion and culture. The exciting and new discoveries of the archives had turned into something very different. Returning to that spot for research was like entering the depths of a dark nightmare and reliving the trauma of the past. It was like a recurring dream that demanded attention. I had begun to wrestle with a past that was no longer past or quite so easily sealed off from the present in which I stood. The terror and pain of the past that Baldwin wrote about had become mine. I tell this very personal story because I thought it would be helpful in, in making, or at least in advancing a, a, a portion of my argument here. And let me just return very briefly to uh, Jacqueline Hall in trying to uh, elaborate on this point. She, she writes here, I quote her, Try as we may to break free from the overarching narratives of our time, they persist in the underlying structures of the stories that we tell." End quote. In her work on autobiography as social critique, Hall speaks of outsiders trying to find a new way of interweaving memory and history and moving beyond traditional disciplinary constraints. I'm not sure that I have found that new way in my own work, but I hope my work opens up new questions and new inquiries that will help us to rethink not simply the ways we have told the stories about African-American religion, 
but new ways of how we as scholars relate to our subject matter. You will note, of course, that I have not really offered a positive proposal with respect to the position of the scholar in relation to her or his subject matter. I've not done so because I see this paper in part as a collaborative quest for clarity and new direction. Thus, it remains a work in progress. I think it is necessary to engage in not only new ways of studying African-American religions, but we, meet, but we need to pay close attention to how our categories have been formed and how they continue to constrain and shape contemporary discussions. I believe that historians should be interested in the cultural work, for example, that the black church construction has performed and why it persists. Hence, my attempt to provide a kind of genealogy of this expression and to, and to historicize what I call the burden of black religion in my book and to some extent in this talk. That history has to be told alongside the diversity of the religious experiences of African Americans because as James Baldwin notes, it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Perhaps closer attention to that complicated history will reshape our contemporary discussions. Thank you. Um, we have some time for questions. I have a microphone that works. Uh, so if you have a question, um, I can, we can get this to you. And uh, if you can identify yourself, that would be great. Let me take this. Hi, my name is Karen Guth. Thanks for your talk. Um, I was really interested in your discussion of agency. And I was wondering if you find um, some of the womanist concepts of agency helpful um, in your thinking about that, such as um, survival, quality of life, um, and what they've done with the concept of making a way out of no way. Because it seems to me that they don't, those concepts don't altogether get around you know, the, the binary that you're talking about, but they do seem to talk about it in more complex ways. Well, the short answer to that, I would say, yes, I find some of that discussion helpful. I think in many ways, Marla Frederick's emphasis on uh, survival, um, building, nurturing communities, and so on, coincides with some of this. Though um, I would be curious to hear others on this point. I think a lot of women in scholarship, of course, is emphasizing a kind of resistance to structures of oppression so that it's not necessarily the case that one could argue that there's a a direct relationship between agency and resistance, though resistance is, it seems to me, a central part of the narrative. Um, but I would be curious to hear others on that point in terms of uh, womanist conceptions of agency and if you would regard that as essentially uh, an emphasis on resistance, which is what I'm in some ways trying to sort of pull away from by arguing for what I call a more complex notion of agency. And, and I should state here, I mean, it might sound rather odd for me to make this claim that even though I spent a great deal of time talking about agency, that is one part of the, I think a very important part of the discussion, but the point I was trying to raise is that if there's another way we can sort of rethink the dichotomy of resistance and accommodation, I'm very much open to that. I think there's a lot of new scholarship that's exploring and looking at various ways. So agency is not the only way, uh, or for that matter, perhaps not the central way, but it seems to me agency understood as a form of resistance has been the central way in which this has been categorized or understood. And I would, I, w I would hope for at least a sort of more robust notion of agency or if, 
if agency if, if, if agency is not the primary locus, uh, perhaps there's another way we can approach this, and I'd be curious to hear some thoughts on that as well. Hi, my name is uh, Kimberly Payton. I'm a third year MDiv student, and uh, I'm a member of Ebenezer Baptist Church here in Atlanta, and I've sort of seen my church struggle with this issue of, you know, the future versus the past. And my question is, why do you think that this is a problem with the black church specifically as opposed to Judaism, where, you know, identity and religion are kind of caught up and they've been through oppressive periods but have been able to continue without this sort of debate? That's a really excellent question. I mean, um, I think it's specifically with regard to African-American religion, even in, for example, the work by Marla Frederick and um, I'm thinking of um, Anthea Butler. On the one hand, they make the argument about moving away from a kind of black church model. But at a certain part of the narrative, there, it, from my perspective, it seems that there's a kind of wistfulness once they encounter contemporary African-American religious practices that tend to emphasize a kind of individualistic approach to religious experience and that tend to uh, shy away from kind of um, structural dimensions of inequality, social injustice, and so on. And so, the Af and so African American history in some ways is invoked as a kind of counter to that. And I think, so, so it's useful in that regard. And furthermore, I think just the recency of the civil rights movement itself. Um, and, and, and I think that the history functions in such a way, in part, as I said, as a way of kind of informing the present as to why that would be different than, say, Judaism or another religious tradition. I don't really have the answer to that. I'd be curious to hear others on this point, if indeed that is the case with regard to Judaism or another religious tradition. I mean, do, or, are you suggesting that the past is invoked in a completely different manner, or is it just the issue of the, the collective, that is to say, the way in which African Americans have sort of thought of the black church model that I'm trying to deconstruct in some ways. I think more so on the latter, um, where there seems to be constantly this, this tension of old, older worship styles, newer worship styles, you know, what the purpose of the church is, um, and so more along those lines. I, 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 to just sort of add in terms of the broader history of, uh, of American churches, I think that, that African Americans are not peculiar in the sense of struggling what is actually the role of churches. I mean, I was recently teaching a course on a social gospel movement, late 19th, early 20th century, and it seemed to me one of the central problems or issues that they were wrestling with is, one, what is the church? And secondly, what is the role, what is the mission of the church? And although one could argue that Walter Rauschenbusch and a number of other figures engaged in a kind of caricature of more those who are more evangelistically inclined, at least for them, they, they, their argument was that the church is certainly something that should be engaged in more than the sort of salvation of individual souls or this sort of individualistic, pietistic approach to religion. And therefore, for Rauschenbusch, for example, this sort of developing of this broader or more capacious notion of the kingdom of God, that in some way perhaps it could be realized in time or at least in part, this was one way of sort of re-envisioning the role of the church and its relationship to his concept of the kingdom of God. I mention all of this just to say that um, African-American churches are not alone in sort of wrestling with what it means to be a church and what is the mission or role of the church. 
though there are distinctives in the African-American experience that make this a more complicated issue. As I was trying to point to, at least in the example with Obama and Jeremiah Wright. Joy McDougall again. Thank you. Um, as you were talking, I went, whew, I have at least seven questions, but um, everybody's <laughs> thankful I'm going to ask just one. And it picks up on this, um, exactly this question um, about the agency and this um, womanist discourse and connecting it to the Mahmoud. Um, so I, I have, I'll say, I'll, I'll take a stab on the womanist uh, question. I think um, even though they've nuanced the categories in really interesting ways, I still think it fits your critique of the binary, which is, are we in a binary about liberation or subversion versus subordination or protest accommodation. So I think it's a really interesting um, observation um, building on Mahmoud. So my question would be, um, in the what next frame, you made a couple of references to doing really careful case study work. Um, and I'm really curious, um, Protestant Catholic, I mean, spiritual dispositions, are things going on, for example, in the black Catholic? Um, communities that might give you some leverage to help upset this binary. And I guess underneath that is a question, is the binary a typical American binary, an obsession with will and freedom? Is it a Protestant binary? Mm -hmm. So you said some things about spiritual dispositions that I thought were really interesting. So I just wanted to ask you to say a little more yeah, about that. I, I, I'd be curious to hear others on that. I really don't know enough about the, the, the Catholic experience among African Americans to make an informed judgment about how distinctive it would be and whether or not it sort of breaks this particular category, or I should say this, this binary. Um, I don't know if anyone else has um, anything to add on that particular point. Uh, as to whether or not this is something distinctive to Protestants or something that's distinctively American, I don't know about distinctively Protestant, perhaps certainly distinctively American, perhaps in terms of, especially in the, in the case of African American experience, thinking about whether or not particular practices either reinforce the system or and therefore sort of contribute to subordination or in some sense is um, protest against or uh, subversion of the system. And so whether or not that is distinctively for African, the African-American experience or this distinctively Protestant thing, I, I, I'm not entirely sure about that. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of, I mean, do you think that there's something distinctive about Catholics that would break this? sort of binary or that they've not wrestled with this perhaps in the same way? No, I was just actually actually very intrigued by your suggestion, which is that there may be other categories to understand anthropology um, and other constants than just facing agency and will dynamics, mm -hmm. subversion, subordination. So I'm really interested in other metaphors or ways of talking about it. And I thought your illusion about maybe Catholics or even just case studies, the Delta versus the North. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's all sorts of not only geographic differences, but private understandings about what spiritual life looks like. So I just thought it was I just thought it was really fascinating. I hadn't yeah, thought about it yeah. that way. Well, so. to give you one example of a study I was alluding to or made reference to, namely Marla Frederick, who was looking at African American women in mostly a Baptist tradition in Halifax County, North Carolina, and this study was conducted in the mid 1990s. And um, she's looking at a number of practices: uh, the practice of tithing among African American women. And just, uh, just on the issue of tithing, uh, and I've, just, I've taught this book in a number of graduate seminars, and also um, she raises this question, how should we, how should we think of this, uh, uh, this practice of tithing? The women's self-report is they're contributing 10% of their income to this church. Uh, they talk also about its instrumental value, that is to say the church is helping the broader community, 
they also see it as a kind of Christian duty on their part. But whenever I discuss that issue with students, uh, basically they see this as sort of contributing to women's oppression because one, these women are not well off and if they're contributing 10% of their income, this is clearly something that is not good for them. Um, and Marla Frederick tries to complicate that by saying on the one hand, we, we shouldn't look at this solely as it's either a case of oppression or a case of, that is to say contributing to women's oppression because we should first of all look at these women's self-reports and secondly we should think about the way in which this money contributes to the broader community and so on. But she raises very real questions about uh, the impact that this is having on these women who are not well off and that this is a significant chunk of their income. and so religion is functioning in, in a number of different ways. It's certainly constraining these individuals in many ways. Uh, it, it, it inhibits their abilities in a number of ways. I mean, obviously taking 10% of one's income uh, inhibits what one can do with that portion of one's income in other areas. Uh, not to mention, of course, she, she doesn't dwell at length on this, but one could raise the question about the way in which churches could be potentially abusing uh, this or misusing this money in terms of financial accountability and things of this sort. Um, but in, in this particular instance, though, in this instance, it seems to me what the point that Frederick wants to make is that even if you can look at it in these sort of dichotomous categories, if you're closely examining these women, for them at least, it's a form of a Christian practice that teaches them to be more generous, that teaches them to give, and they see it as a, a part of their Christian spirituality, their formation in some way. And, and so if you're thinking of it in those terms, it's hard to put in either of those terms sort of necessarily reinforcing the system or it's somehow uh, a protest against the system in some form or another. So that would be one example. I mean, there are a number of other issues that she focuses on in that particular book, but I was, that's what I had in mind when I was talking about particular studies. And even the example that I gave about Hortense Powdermaker, uh, the call for uh, people to love one another and the practices in these particular churches, uh, the, 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 the many criticisms of African Americans at the time that this was a form of passivity in the face of oppression and hardship and so on. Um, um, and how does one take into account self-reports? And here, I, I should be clear about this. I'm in no way suggesting that obviously scholars uh, should just sort of uncritically accept self-reports on the part of subjects that they're studying, basically arguing for a more complex understanding of the practices that they're engaging in rather than rendering it in these sort of binary categories. We have time for one more. Miss uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Burnett, well, I'm just. I just want to say that I feel really offended as a black person in America when people try to criticize Reverend Wright because I just compare Reverend Wright, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, to the Jeremiah, uh, the 8th century prophet uh, in history. I mean, to me, they were both doing and talking about, speaking out about the same thing. Although uh, Jeremiah in the Bible in the 8th century, he was saying similar to what Reverend Jeremiah Wright it's in this 21st century. Thank you. I don't think there was a question in there, <laughs> implicit in that way. Thank you. Um, I'm Alexis Wells, a third year PhD student in the GDR. And um, 
I have a question about this methodological move away from the black church nomenclature. I think it's a great, I'm totally on board, so I'm not one of those grad students that don't like that argument. I love that argument. And I think it really does help to move the conversation about agency away from engagement with the public political, namely, sphere. I'm also wondering how might a delinkage of black religion with black Christianity help to facilitate the, the conversation around agency? And if you have any preliminary insights about how we do that methodologically in the study of black religion. If I could ask you to clarify, when you say disconnecting black religion from uh, black Christianity, you mean in thinking in terms of st studies or Study, how we conceptualize yes. this issue? Yeah, in the well, the first, I mean, the, the one short answer to that is there are people like uh, Edward Curtis who's doing work on the Nation of Islam and other groups and making these very kinds of claims when he's looking at the uh, religious practices of the Nation of Islam in the context of the 1960s, where the issue of uh, African-American women, um, uh, what he, what, there's a chapter entitled Rituals of the Body, the way they dress and so on, and uh, dietary habits and so on. Um, and, and, and it seems to me, at least, the argument that he's making is, is a similar one that I'm advancing here, namely that we shouldn't look at these practices solely in terms of uh, this binary of accommodation and protest. Um, that would be one example of um, a group that's not Christian where, this, where you see an example of this kind of work. Um, and this is a historical study of a group in the, in basically tracing it from about 1960 to 1975 when uh, the Nation of Islam in, experiences a split. Um, I'm, I'm not aware, like off the top of my head, like was, there, there are con contemporary uh, examples in mind uh, of ethnographic studies, but this would just be one example of the Nation of Islam. I, um, does that partially answer what you have in mind, or is in terms of the group, or are you primarily thinking about the methodological move here? So everybody can hear me. No, I, I'm thinking primarily because I, I study 19th century mm -hmm. and earlier than 19th century. So methodologically, a lot of what has been produced in the study of African American religion does focus primarily upon black Christianity as the primary manifestation of black religion. And so sometimes those models of how we study religion are not helpful for studying um, manifestations of religiosity that are not institutionalized and sure. that do not have uh, the same patterns that we see in the 20th century when we, the black church does become nomenclature that is being used in discourse. Well, the uh, one I would think of the top of my head is in terms of African diasporic religions is Catherine McCarthy Brown's book on uh, Mama Lola, uh, which, I mean, in, just in terms of her analysis of sort of uh, it complicating whether Christian or traditional categories of good and evil. And it just seems to me the kind of analysis that she's doing is so far removed from these sort of traditional categories. So this would be one example I would have in mind of a, of a non-Christian tradition that would complicate these categories and would be an example of a kind of ethnographic study. Um, as I said, Edward Curtis has written extensively on the Nation of Islam. Uh, so there, there's, there's work out there. And I, I, I should add, too, that I, I think that work even on African-American Christianity can do this as well. I mean, I was, in fact, the, the examples that I was using, Marla Frederick um, and Anthea Butler, John Gigi, and others, I think, for the most part, successfully do this. But you're right, this, this complicates it even further uh, in terms of sort of detaching the category 
a black religion from black uh, Christianity. Okay, I think we, uh, you have to, we all have got to get him fed at some point, plus he's got to get a, an airplane. So, uh, <laughs> but thank him so much for, uh, Dr. Curtis, so much for, uh, Dr. Herman, so much for the wonderful thank The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.